0: Esther, chapter four, verse number ten. Esther four ten. Again, Esther spake unto Hatak, to and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king unto the inner court who is not Invited, not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter. He may live, but I have not been called to come in unto the king these 30 days. And when they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, think not with thyself, that thou shalt escape by living in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return to Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me. Neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. And I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so, after that, I will go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. We ask, Heavenly Father, your blessing as we consider a subject that is peripheral, related to our study of great faith. We pray that the comments that I make will be directed by your Holy Spirit. And if there are questions, they may be created by the Holy Spirit. We pray for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Esther, also known as Hadassah, was cousin to the Jew named Mordecai. And she, by the grace of God, by the miracle of God, by the providence of God, became queen of the Medes and the Persians. She became one of, she became the primary wife of Ahasuerus, the king. She was providentially placed in that position by God in order to save Israel from genocide. Haman, an anti-Semite, was able to convince King Ahasuerus to order the destruction of the entire Jewish nation. The only person who could save Israel was this lady, Esther. But not even the queen could walk into the inner throne room of the king and tell the man that he was making a big mistake. She rarely ever saw her husband. She hadn't seen him for 30 days. They didn't have lunch together. They didn't sit down after getting up in the morning and having their cup of coffee just talking about things. It didn't happen. It was a different society there. For Esther to talk to the king uninvited was by law a criminal offense to be carried out with an execution unless the king intervened. Mordecai convinced her that she would have to trust God and risk her life in the defense of Israel. He said, Think not within thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then there shall enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed." Now, Mordecai was a good Bible believer. He knew that Israel was going to be preserved because Israel had the command of God. But not necessarily through Esther. But, he said, I think that you have been placed where you are right now in order to bring about this uh, salvation. Then came Mordecai's most famous words. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Thousands of sermons have been preached from that very good text of Scripture. Go gather together all the Jews that are present at Shushan and fast for me, Esther said. Eat neither drink, eat neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther is a good example of faith because she was not a great example of faith. Her faith was like ours, less than perfect. Nevertheless, out of duty, she was determined to lay her life on the line, and I commend her for that. I will go in and speak to the king, and if I die, I die. I'm going to die anyway. I'm going to go out knocking on doors, making cold calls for the Lord. And if I perish, I perish. I'm going to risk my job by telling the boss about my Savior. And if I lose my job, I lose my job. There's another job out there. Her last words were less than exemplary. If I perish, I perish. That does not sound like strong faith to me. But it does sound a lot like things that float around in my head pretty often, maybe yours as well. This message today doesn't fit perfectly into our series on practical faith, but it is related. If I ever put this in a book form, this message will be an addendum at the back of the book. It might happen. This is about faith and about a desire for God's blessings, both of which I greatly yearn to possess. This message is about risking one's life in the way that Jonathan did, or the way that David and Abishai risked their lives as they crept in among the soldiers of Saul to steal that man's spear. We could use this event to illustrate revival, because Israel was saved. They did prosper after this lady risked her life to bring that about. This is a message about practical faith. But at the same time, I want to leave the body of that study we've been in for a while and focus on just one word that Esther uses. She told Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast for me. And I also and my maidens will fast likewise. There's no way to misunderstand what she was saying. She directly said, three days, three nights, no food. Our question this afternoon is this. How essential is fasting to a victorious Christian life? I am yearning for God's blessing in my life. I want to see God's blessing on our church. I have been praying that the Lord would empower us for His glory. I want us to possess real, practical, earth-shattering faith. I, I want the people of our Thessalonica to say, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. I want this sort of thing. The question is, is fasting an essential step toward these blessings? How necessary was it for the Jews at Shushan to fast in order for Esther to be protected by the Lord? If there had been no fasting, would she have accomplished her God-given purpose? Was she led of the Holy Spirit to make this request of uh, Mordecai and his friends out there? Or was this just something that was in her mind? Was it essential for Esther to stop eating for three days before she could actually trust God to bring these things to pass? The answers to these questions are not easy. And there are disagreements by men on both sides who are far better scholars than I am. Several days before starting to think about this message, I pulled out a book to reread. This has been on my shelf for, well, since 1975. I write down the date when I read these things. K. David Oldfield, 1975. I've had it a long time. I have not read it since 1975. Almost said 45. Why Revival Tarries, written by Leonard Ravenhill. Ravenhill, in this book, rips apart modern Christianity for its worldliness and its worthlessness. He lays out several important and obvious reasons for Christianity's impotency. Why do we not have revival? Well, it's because of our prayerlessness. It's about, uh, because of the cheapness of our modern religion these days. It is because we go about the Lord's work stealing His glory and claiming it for ourselves. These are the sort of things that He brings up right here. He, the purpose of the book is to explain why we don't have revival. As I say, I started reading the book before I started thinking about the message. And then I started thinking back about the book as I was halfway through... And it occurred to me, not once does he mention fasting. Not once does this man, who is accredited as being an expert in revival by others, A.T. or uh, uh, and others, uh, he never mentions fasting as being necessary for revival. Okay? On the other hand, I spent 30 minutes on the internet looking at other people's opinions. And the first ones that I looked at were all different than this. Wellspring Christian Ministries is a quasi-Baptist organization with a strong internet presence. In the article that I found, the first thing there, they say, if God has burdened your heart for the state of our nation and you long for a spiritual awakening and revival in our land, we are asking you to join us in a day of prayer and fasting to petition God to send a revival and turn our nation back to Him. I don't have a problem with that. Going on, they wrote, Second Chronicles 7.14 is our theme verse as we seek revival in America. This verse says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. Well, Springs implies that Second Chronicles teaches fasting, and without that fasting, there will never be revival. I'm sorry, I couldn't see the word fasting in that verse. It's not there. It's not in my Bible. So I pulled out my RSV. It's not in there. And my ASV. It's not in there. My ESV. And it's not there. Fasting is not in that verse. I can see how one might read into that verse, fasting. But exegesis is bringing the truth out of a verse. And it's not in Second Chronicles 7.14. It has to be read into it, not out of it. The second website I perused was something called Christian Union. Their article authoritatively declared, if a Christian isn't involved in fasting, then it's hard to make a biblical case that such a person is considered humble before God. Furthermore, such a person or people would also forfeit the incredible promises in the second half of Second Chronicles 7.14. Almost anywhere a Christian revival and awakening has come, fasting came first. So according to these people, no one can be humble without fasting. It's a wonder they didn't say, no one can be spiritual unless they're fasting, We are spiritual drones without fasting. It's a wonder they didn't say, we are Pharisees of the Pharisees and we know exactly what you need to do. I will not deny that Christian history sometimes shows us a connection between fasting and revival. It's there sometimes. Not every time, but sometimes. But we've recently looked at a dozen events in biblical history... Where we saw great victories, and not one of them referred to fasting. None. One more reference comes from an organization called Revival Library. Quote, Fasting releases the power of God through our prayers like nothing else can. Again, my question is, Does God require fasting before he will keep his promises to bless and to empower his people? Is fasting more important than faith? Is fasting the fast track to faith? In my rather quick internet search, no one gave me a chapter and verse which made statements like I just suggested. Fasting is essential to God's blessings. So my first conclusion, my first conclusion, semi-conclusion, early conclusion, is fasting is a confusing subject producing differing opinions and conflict between brethren. There are professed experts with differing opinions. And no matter what I say this afternoon, it is quite possible that people will disagree with what I have to say. That's all right. Yet I will press on because you need to know what I think about fasting. To try to answer my earlier questions, let's start with a biblical history of fasting. We find that Genesis never uses the word. In fact, I couldn't think of any instance where it was even implied. The subject doesn't start with any of the patriarchs. We have no record that Noah fasted or Abraham fasted, Isaac or Jacob. They didn't fast in order to have closer fellowship with the Lord, unless I'm missing something. In other words, unlike tithing, fasting was not set in place prior to the introduction of the law at Sinai. Following that, I can't find fasting in any of the other books of the Pentateuch either. You won't find fasting in Exodus, where the law was given. You won't find it in Deuteronomy, where the law was reiterated a second time. It's not there. No fasting. Not even the Jews were required by God to abstain for food, from food for spiritual purposes, or even religious purposes. The first reference to fasting comes up on page 314. I think that's the seventh book of the Old Testament. Judges 20:26. 20, first use of the word fast. Then all of the children of Israel and all the people went up and came into the house of God and wept. And sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until even. And offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. The first reference to fasting in the Bible is not a command. It's not an exhortation. It's not a suggestion that God's people ought to fast. It's only a statement of fact. They did it. These people did it. The context tells us. That it was in the midst of a very sad event. And the entire nation was grieved over it. Simply put, the people had no appetite. They had no desire to eat. They were pouring out their hearts to the Lord and that was it. The focus was not on starving themselves, but on their grief and their need of the Lord. The second reference to fasting is found in 1 Samuel 7, 6, and again, it's just a statement of fact. And they gathered together at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord like a sacrifice and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Samuel judged the people of Israel, but he did not command them to fast. The reason they didn't eat was that they had been brought to see their vile, sinful condition, and it grieved them so much that they had no appetite. Their fasting was a result, not a cause, of God's conviction or His blessing. Next, at the end of 1 Samuel... David led Israel in mourning and fasting in the memory of Saul and Jonathan. David, by this time, had ascended to the throne. The king could have commanded Israel to fast. He didn't. He simply did not eat himself. And this set the tone for the nation and there was a a period of fasting. The next reference was David's fasting and prayer for Bathsheba's baby. 2 Samuel 12, 16. David therefore besought the Lord for the child, and David fasted, and went in and lay all night upon the earth. Nevertheless, the child died. At that point, then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now the child is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. The first half dozen references to fasting contain no commands, no exhortations, They are just statements of fact. These people fasted. But admittedly, after that, later in the Old Testament, there are commands for Israel to fast. Esther, queen of the Medes and the Persians, after this episode in our text, ordered that during the days of Purim, Israel should fast. Do you know what Purim is? It's there in the Bible. Not only don't Christians hardly know what Purim is, we've never been told to keep Purim as a religious holiday. It was established to memorialize Israel's deliverance from Haman and the edict to destroy all the people of Israel. Esther's command has absolutely nothing to do with Christians' today. It was just them. The book of Joel is one of the very few places in God's word where we read distinct commands to fast. Joel chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. Sanctify ye a fast. Call a solemn assemble. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord, alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is at hand. And then in the next chapter. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Please keep in mind that the context of these commands is the nation of Israel standing at the doorway to the day of the Lord. It is a stretch of logic to demand that this has something to do with us. And by the way, offsetting these verses, come come words in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah, which condemned the way Israel was observing fasts. I admit that we find fasting, that is abstaining from food, in a limited way in the Old Testament. Moses, for example, spent 40 days on Sinai without food. He fasted. But that wasn't a religious ceremony, and it wasn't commanded of anybody else. Joshua did, because he was up there in the mountain too, but nobody else. I'm not convinced that any Old Old Testament fasting was necessary in order for God to shower down his blessings on people. It was not in order to receive God's blessings. Rather, these people fasted because of sin and judgment. But what does the New Testament say? The first reference we find is simply a statement that Anna practiced fasting. This is the elderly lady who met Mary and Joseph when they brought their infant son into the temple. She was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Anna was given to prayer and fasting. There was certainly nothing wrong with her doing that. But she didn't have a command from Moses to do it. She didn't have a command from David to do it. She just did it. Furthermore, it doesn't appear that she encouraged anyone else to join her. This was just her. This was a private matter between her and the Lord. The next set of references point out that Jesus fasted for 40 days prior to his temptation by Satan. Some people, calling themselves scholars say that Jesus' fasting means that Christians should fast. But that connection is ludicrous. Especially if those people are saying, we need to fast in order to receive the blessing of God. Jesus didn't fast in order to receive the blessing of God. Jesus' fasting and temptation are not related to praying for power and for revival. His was in preparation for the severe testing which he endured on our behalf. That was absolutely unique. Later, after the arrest of John the Baptist, came to Christ Jesus the disciples of John, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? Matthew nine fourteen. During the lifetime of Christ, Jesus' disciples did not fast because he didn't tell them to. He didn't lead them to. He gave them no example to do that. Well, Jesus said unto the disciples of John, Can the children of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. The Lord ties fasting to mourning, just as we see it so often in the Old Testament. Again, some experts say that this verse gives them authority to demand that Christians practice fasting. But the words, when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, then they shall fast, is not a command. It's just a statement of fact. Yearning for the presence of the Savior and for the power of the Holy Spirit may lead people into foregoing food for prayer and introspection. But again, I don't see Christ commanding it. During his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to fasting, and he implied that there can be a blessing in it. But even there, the Lord doesn't command us. Rather, it's a direction that we do it properly, if we do it at all. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which is in secret shall reward thee openly. Matthew six seventeen and 18. Christ doesn't condemn or discount fasting. He doesn't tell us not to do it, but doesn't command us to do it either. There's no doubt that the church in Antioch and the evangelists who went out from Antioch practiced fasting. Acts thirteen two, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Paul, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And then in chapter 14 that we saw this morning. And when they, Paul and Barnabas, had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. These verses, in my estimation, are the strongest arguments for you and me to fast. But again, I point out there are no commands in here. There are no exhortations here, only examples. And related to that, Paul tells us that he often fasted. 2 Corinthians 6, 5, and eleven twenty seven. 27. I want our church to experience regularly and consistently the power of God. I want us to know the presence of the Holy Spirit. I want to feel His presence. I want to be able to see it in your faces. I yearn to see people saved through our ministries. I want to see us be a blessing to other churches. I want the Holy Spirit to turn Post Falls upside down to ignite a fire, spiritual fire in this community from us, but not necessarily. But I don't see in the Bible where abstaining from food is essential to these things. I will admit... There may be a problem with my opinion in Mark chapter 9, Matthew chapter 17. When Jesus, James, Peter, and John came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, they found the rest of the disciples in distress. A man had brought his demon-possessed son to the other disciples and asked that they would uh, command the demon to leave but they failed. When Jesus came back, they asked the Lord, why could not we cast him out? Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith, not for their lack of fasting. Their lack of faith. But then he did add, however, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Apparently, overconfidently, Andrew and the others just assumed that they could walk up to a demon and say, out of here. A little arrogant on their part. It didn't happen. Because they hadn't humbly besought the Holy Spirit in the matter. Mm. Their failure was not due to the fact that they ate breakfast this morning. It was due to the fact that they lacked faith and submission to the Lord. They were going on in their own strength. The Lord doesn't bless that. If abstaining from food for a day would guarantee we could experience a second Pentecost, then I would immediately schedule a weekly or a monthly day of fasting. But I find no direction in the Word of God for me to do that. And by the way, on that first great day of Pentecost... There was no fasting involved. There was prayer, but no reference to fasting. Here are some other questions to consider. Do examples have the same authority as commands? We have examples. We see biblical examples of fasting connected with certain incidents. But do we see fasting connected with great revival, And blessing of God. I'm just asking the question. We're told that Paul and Silas fasted before entering Thessalonica. Wait a minute. That should be a question. Did they fast before going to Corinth and start preaching there? Thessalonica or or Philippi? We're not told that they did. Oh, but we're not told they didn't. True. Well, I'll grant you that. They may may very well have fasted, but the Bible doesn't tell us so. And that means something to the rest of us. I don't believe the Holy Spirit is demanding that we fast. Where do we read or see that fasting is a requisite part for a strong faith? There may be a spiritual connection between fasting and faith, but uh, again, is, is fasting the fast track to faith? No one of not one of the examples of great practical faith that we have considered in the last few weeks has included fasting. Here are a few knots to keep in mind. Biblical fasting is not just about food 1 Corinthians 7 5 tells us it's about other pleasant and pleasurable things in other words simply not to eat dinner on your Friday night date shouldn't be considered fasting maybe you shouldn't have the Friday night date and this kind of fasting should not be thought of as a dieting method method And in that regard, remember, many people cannot fast for medical reasons. It is necessary that diabetics, for example, eat regular meals. So does that mean that someone who has blood sugar problems can never feel the power of God because they never fast? Certainly not. Fasting is not intended to punish the body or to redirect the flesh toward the Lord. It can be, but is not necessarily a part of the denial of the flesh. It can be. It's not another aspect of self-flagellation for the glory of God. It must not be thought of as an effort to coerce God into doing something for you. Lord, I haven't eaten in 12 hours, so therefore I need you to do this. doesn't work that way. The longer we fast, the more power of God will be given to us. Question mark? Come on. doesn't work that way. And it is definitely not a means to appear more spiritual than the next person. In fact, according to Jesus' instruction, the next person shouldn't even know that you are fasting. Please don't come telling me that you fasted all day yesterday so that the power of God would be on me today. I don't want to hear that. I don't need to hear that. That smells like pride. Drawing nigh unto God in whatever state it is done should be personal and private. If you choose to spend next Saturday without food praying for the Lord, I will not discourage you. If I know about it in some fashion, I will encourage you to do it. But don't come and tell me the next day you've done it. You may think that I'm trying to discourage people from fasting in their pursuit of God's blessing. I am not. I sincerely desire that you be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit leads you to spend a day on your knees with nothing but a Bible in front of you for 18 hours, then go for it. I'm all for it. I encourage you in that. I praise the Lord for that. But don't seek to starve yourself in order to obtain some sort of righteousness. Putting the Lord first. The Holy Spirit might temporarily move things out of your life. Let me intentionally misquote Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these other things will come along. Keep first things first. The first thing is the Lord, not your belly. The first thing is your fellowship with the Lord. Not doing these things in order to have fellowship with the Lord. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth or in your stomach. Don't put your denial of the flesh above actually seeking the Lord. Again, I say, I really, really want to see us all filled with the Holy Spirit and with his power. And I know that in order to receive that feeling, we need to be sufficiently empty. But more important than being or having an empty belly is having a heart which is empty of pride and envy and greed and self-glory. These are the things we need to give up for the power of God. There are probably a lot of things we should be willing to give up for the Lord. And food may be one of them. Mm. But generally speaking, there are far more important other things. Sinful things, worldly things, which need to go first.